The following message is from Temple Bible Church. For more information about the church and its ministries, visit www.templebiblechurch.org. All right, once again, I want to welcome you guys to TBC, and uh, we continue our study in Ezra. Uh, before we get into that, I just want to remind you of TBC together next Sunday night. It's going to be an awesome time together. We're going to hang out and get to know one another in the lobby, and then we'll come in here for more of that amazing worship uh, that we just heard. It's just so great to hear uh, these gifted musicians, talented musicians that come and serve us, and so it's a great opportunity for us to lift our voices to God, to get to know one another, uh, maybe meet some new people. Uh, So that's next Sunday. You can even go right now on your phone if you want and uh, sign up right now. I don't care. Uh, So go for it next Sunday night. It's going to be awesome. Um, a few things, uh, man, that God's been reminding me of, just his faithfulness in, in many ways. Um, one is, uh, and I, uh, our week started off pretty normal, which we don't have many normal weeks having four kids, but um, it was kind of normal. And then our second daughter uh, showed up in our room at 1.30 in the morning in excruciating pain. And uh, Never heard her cry like that in my life. And through two visits to urgent care and one to Scott White, discovered it was a kidney stone. And uh, if anybody's ever had those, you know why she was screaming. And um, so God's faithfulness is always there, just provided people that we knew well and cared for her well. And he ended up having, she ended up having to have surgery to remove that. So uh, you can pray for her as she recovers. Also pray for Skeeta. You've seen him in our announcements. You might have seen him in our children's wing. Um, his wife has gone through some tests and uh, difficulty uh, physically as well. Her name's Tanya. If you could lift her up in prayer. Uh, as I, I've looked in these scriptures, uh, just anytime I'm, I'm up here, I just um, am fascinated by the beauty of God's word. And it's taken me a long time to really appreciate that. I grew up in the church, dad as a pastor, and just uh, really seeing God's word in amazing ways. And Ezra is no different. Um, Ezra chapter seven is where um, the last few weeks we've looked at a reconstruction project, um, physical reconstruction project. And today we're actually gonna look at a little different in the second half of the book. It's actually a reconstruction project, but it's for God's people. So the last few weeks in chapters one through six, we've seen the temple rebuilt, physical reconstruction and things like that. But uh, starting today, we're actually gonna look at this second one, which is more of a, a kind of a breaking down and, uh, of, of those who need repentance, uh, looking at uh, the desire of Ezra to see people come to God and be obedient to his word. Referencing Israel's history in Ezra, James Harrison Jr. writes, there was a decree by Cyrus, king of Persia in Ezra I, a return to the land in chapter two, followed by external opposition to the rebuilding of the temple, city, and wall in chapters three through six. In Ezra seven through 10, it's as though the author is doing the second verse to the same song. In chapter seven, there's a decree from Artaxerxes, king of Persia, followed by a return to the land in chapter eight, followed by internal opposition in the mixed marriage crisis in chapters nine through 10. It's like he's just repeating it, but just in a different way. But either way, there's a decree, a return, and there's opposition. So we're halfway through this book. And it's interesting that a book with the name Ezra in the first six chapters has no mention of anyone named Ezra. 
It's kind of interesting. Some scholars even think maybe Ezra didn't write the first six chapters. I don't know, and maybe they're right. I have no idea, but it's really fascinating that a book with his title uh, takes six chapters to get to his actual name. Well, that's where we're at today. If you look at Ezra chapter seven, starting in verse one, we won't read the whole chapter today for time, but we'll read the first 10 verses. And pardon me if I butcher any of these names. After these events, during the reign of King Artaxerxes of Persia, Ezra, Sariah's son, Azariah's son, Hilkiah's son, Shalom's son, Zadok's son, Atub's son, Amariah's son, Azariah's son, Mariah's son, Zerahiah's son, Uzi's son, Buki's son, Abishua's son, Phinehas's son, Eleazar's son, the chief priest, Aaron's son, came up from Babylon. He was a scribe skilled in the law of Moses, which the Lord, the God of Israel, had given. The king had granted him everything he requested because the hand of the Lord his God was on him. Some of the Israelites, priests, Levites, singers, gatekeepers, and temple servants accompanied him to Jerusalem in the seventh year of King Artaxerxes. Ezra came to Jerusalem in the fifth month during the seventh year of the king. He began the journey from Babylon on the first day of the first month and arrived in Jerusalem on the first day of the fifth month since the gracious hand of his God was on him. Don't miss this one. Now Ezra had determined in his heart to study the law of the Lord, obey it, and teach its statutes and ordinances in Israel. So here's Ezra described in great detail. And the rest of the chapter goes on to talk about, it's basically the king's letter of approval of Ezra and all the different gifts God, uh, that God used the king to send with Ezra on this journey. See, chapter seven, it actually jumps ahead from what we've been studying. It jumps ahead 60 years. We catch back up here with Ezra. And there's a few highlights we can mention about Ezra. First of all, his full name was Azariah, which you saw in his lineage there. It's important for us not to miss that lineage. It's an important factor that we'll look at later. But Azariah means the Lord has helped. Specific meaning of his name, the Lord has helped, which is obviously he was born to do what he's about to do. There's three things mentioned specifically about uh, Ezra. He was skilled in the law of Moses, the hand of God was on him, and he set his heart on the law. We're gonna get into detail about all three of those things in a few minutes. See, a lot of attention has been given to those who had already returned. They went to Jerusalem, they helped rebuild the, law, the, the wall, and, and, or I'm sorry, the, the temple and the wall and the city, and they were able to be involved in that process. So there's where all the attention was, but almost 60 years had happened and passed uh, since the second temple dedication. But there was a group, including Ezra, that stayed behind in Babylon, in the pagan city. And so not everybody launched out into Jerusalem. There still was a remnant left. So I guess we could ask ourselves two questions. Why hadn't they returned sooner? Why hadn't Ezra returned sooner? And some people believe, some writers believe that, well, the reality is people stay behind. Ezra was this preacher. Ezra was a man of God. So they needed some men and women to stay behind to help continue to teach those who were left. If every religious leader just left and took off and left a vacuum there, then there really wouldn't be no one to teach. 
and no one expressed what God desired. Also, if you look in chapter 8, verse 22, you actually see that this four-month journey, this 1,000-mile journey, was treacherous. There was dangers. If you look ahead there, and we'll see next week, it actually says that Ezra even considered recruiting cavalry and infantry to travel with them because of the dangers on this road. So there was some difficulty on this journey. Second question would be, well, what compelled Ezra to finally go? Why did he finally head out after all this time? And we can see clearly that he had a deep burden for the people, a deep burden for what was going on. Uh, Most likely in this journey, in this road, as people came from Jerusalem on over to Babylon to do business, there were merchants that came in and out, family that were probably traveling to see uh, those that were left behind. There's most likely stories that Ezra heard, right? Stories about things that maybe were happening that shouldn't have been happening. Maybe stories about the 60 years that have gone on of them forgetting God and forgetting the things that they were taught. And so here's Ezra in these years hearing story after story, right, of them kind of slipping away from the foundation of of the word of God that they had been taught. It's kind of like uh, maybe if you're a parent, you, you know, you imagine uh, you hear things about your kids. I know my dad, I'm the youngest of four kids, and there are many times my dad heard some things about Timmy that uh, mm, probably weren't good, right? And he heard them not like through text or not that, but it's just like someone passed along in the grocery store. Yeah, I saw Timmy. Oh man, not another one. And so there were stories that were being told of the people that were not quite good. They were quite depressing and maybe disappointing because they were forgetting who God was. You got to realize 60 years, these are like, okay, now the people that rebuilt that wall were grandparents and were great grandparents. So what in any event like that, you start to forget, right? Even for us with 9-11, it's like uh, we're so far removed from 9-11 that even some people don't even realize it happened, And in the same sense, an even longer period of time has taken place and there was a need. There was a need for a bold, powerful preacher who would speak out against sin and give them a hope of a righteous path forward. His mission reminds me of the mission of John the Baptist. And we're gonna see parallels throughout this time together of John the Baptist in the New Testament. It reminds me of what was prophesied in Luke chapter 1, verse 16 and 17 about John the Baptist, which could be inserted Ezra's name here. He will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God. He will go before him in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just to make ready for the Lord a people prepared. This was Ezra's mission, just like it was John the Baptist's mission before he was even born. Derek Thomas writes in his commentary on Ezra and Nehemiah, what Jerusalem needed in the fifth century BC was not a therapeutic message of self-worth, making the people feel good about themselves. Rather, they needed to be warned of the consequences of their sinful ways and to be told in no uncertain terms of the need for genuine repentance. You know, I've been involved in church my entire life. I've been a pastor for over 20 years. My dad is a pastor. And ever since I could breathe, I was in church. 
I was in church Sunday morning, Sunday night, Wednesday night, special meetings, revivals, you name it, cleaning the church, whatever it was, guess who was there? Timmy was there with his brother and two sisters. And I've seen amazing things over my years in church, but I've also seen some sad things. And one common occurrence I've seen over the years, not in my dad's church, because he preached repentance, but many, many churches I've seen along the way have abandoned a passionate call for repentance. They sit in chairs like this week in and week out, and they hear messages that are basically self-help messages, uh, self-esteem boosting messages, you be you messages, uh, messages like, you have it inside of you. You're good enough, right? Even like some old SNL sketch where it's like he's looking in a mirror and saying, you're good enough, you're smart enough, and anybody else can fill in the blank that's my age or older, right? And, and you young people are like, what in the world's going on? I'm gonna YouTube that. Uh, but the reality is this. Oftentimes, I've seen over my lifetime, and I've been at some of these churches where it's just, all it is is like, boosting the people in the church so that they'll come back, so that numbers will grow, and so that people will just go on their lives and continue to support the ministry when in reality, it's a cancer of epidemic proportions. We're not called to be in the body of Christ to have our self-esteem boosted. We're not called to be in the body of Christ and be part of the family just to tell us that we're good enough. The message of the gospel is that we're not good enough. That even in that song that we just sung that, that we didn't get what we earned. What we earned is damnation. What we earned is hell. What we earned is separation from God. And the reality is, thank God, Man, we're not good enough, but Jesus is good enough. And Ezra spoke of the coming Messiah. John the Baptist spoke of the coming Messiah. So instead of us being comparison addicted, instead of us being self-esteem addicted, instead of us saying, well, my actions aren't as horrible as so-and-so down the street or uh, down the row from me here in the church, Instead of us doing all of that nonsense, instead what we're called to be as a church is to be a repentant church, a repentant people. Those outside the walls of this church, those outside that don't know Jesus don't need to see a bunch of people who are pretending to be perfect, pretending to have it all together, looking good, and even our kids dressed in a certain way, and our kids are involved in this, this, and this, and the reality is that's not what an unbelieving, dying, going to hell uh, group of people needs to hear or see. What they need to see from us Those outside the church need to see an authentic group of believers struggling yet thriving together in a culture of continual repentance, submission, and devotion to the Savior. They need to see us being the first ones to repent of being an idiot 
They need to see us being the first ones to say, I'm sorry, I got it wrong. I said some things that were wrong. I offended you. They need to see us being the ones that are always forgiving, gracious, merciful, all the things we say we believe, right? The outside world needs to see and hear and and observe a good dose of this medicine, right? So how do we become these type of people? How do we become like Ezra and be repentant and call for repentance? One commentary I read this week gave some great points. I got three of them for you when it comes to Ezra and his deep concern for others. First of all, he was a much needed, passionate priest. He was a passionate priest, not going through the motions in one through six, you can see this, One of the important parts of a genealogy is to really show the foundation of the individual. So a lot of times we just gloss over it because we can't pronounce most of the names, but the reality is it's an important thing. A genealogy, especially for Ezra, was his credentials. It gave him legitimacy. He goes all the way back. His line goes all the way back to who? Aaron, the first priest. And so this was like his resume, so to speak, his genealogy. A priest with these credentials and passion was needed by the people. They were like a parched, thirsty traveler who had gone through a desert and needed a drink of water. 60 years of this. And they needed refreshment. He trusted and he was devoted to the word of God in verse six. You see that. Second, he was a commissioned scribe by King Artaxerxes himself. He was commissioned by the king. Oftentimes we see the word scribe and we immediately think of what? I mean, the word is like writing, right? The source. So we think of people that just wrote down God's word or wrote down what the king had to say. But in reality, a deeper meaning and even further back before the scribes was it really referenced an official position like a secretary of treasury or a secretary of fill in the blank or a minister of. And so the king actually uh, gave this title to Ezra. Basically, he was the minister of religious affairs, because they had this reach far and wide all the way to Jerusalem and the king is like selfishly probably saying, I got this man, he's a great man, he's a, he's a, uh, a man of integrity, I'm sending him to keep the peace because he knew the word of God would help people see their need for repentance and so which would create a better society. So here's the king giving him his commission and then third, he was a man of courage Ezra uh, courageously faced this treacherous journey. This is a four-month journey. I don't know if you caught that in the passage. A four-month journey, starting with the first month, going into the fifth. I do my elementary math like that. I got it. Four months, right? A thousand miles was this journey. And so he was courageous in this. And he was courageous to lead people. It wasn't just Okay, we got singers, gatekeepers, temple servants, and all those. But think, families, right? Wives, children. The, the thought is that he was leading over 5,000 people on this journey. It wasn't just like him and a couple buddies. So it took a lot of courage to lead these people. He also displayed courage in embracing so many unknowns, 
Just like so many biblical figures before him and after him, like Moses, Joshua, Gideon, Paul, so many that were asked to do uh, difficult, even impossible things, he probably had similar questions. What if I'm not good enough? Why would I be called? What if I don't get the job done? What if they don't accept me? And I'm sure none of you can relate to things God has called you to do, right? What if I can't get it done? What if I, and we, we do these what ifs and basically in turn say no to God instead of saying, you know what? If he's called me, he will equip me. And this is what Ezra did. He was called and he was equipped. So what brought this man, Ezra, to the point in his life that he was a commissioned officer of the king himself? How did he become a, a passionately courageous leader of the people of God? Well, it's spelled out for us in this passage. First of all, in verse six, you can see it says, the hand of the Lord his God was on him. What a powerful statement. I thought about this statement because I remember seeing this statement in other scriptures. And I thought about, wow, this is a a really profound thing to be said about somebody. Imagine that being said about you. Even up here on the stage, I'm looking around, I'm like, I could say that about him, about her. A number of people that I can even see their faces. Yeah, the hand of the Lord's on them. The hand of the Lord is actually this phrase is used 39 times in scripture, 36 of them in the Old Testament. We look at the hand of the Lord. Here's some examples of this. It's actually also found in verse 28 of this chapter. Jabez, the story of Jabez in 1 Chronicles 4. When Jabez asked for God to enlarge his territory and increase his influence, the hand of the Lord is found there. Joshua 4, 24, that all the people of the earth might know the hand of the Lord is mighty, that you might fear the Lord your God forever, referring to splitting the Jordan and the Red Sea, the hand of the Lord. The hand of the Lord is found in Job 12, as God created all things, and Job reminded and refreshed his memory of Job uh, looking at creation, the hand of the Lord. 1 Samuel 5 God's judgment on the Philistines had the hand of the Lord on it. Psalm 37, God's protection, talks about the hand of the Lord being on those who need protection. Acts 11, even in the early church, we see that the hand of the Lord was with the early church as they started. So the hand of the Lord is all over the history of God's people. And again, we see a parallel to John the Baptist with the hand of the Lord. Luke 1, and all who heard them laid up, laid up in their hearts saying, what then will this child be? For the hand of the Lord was with him. So here's John the Baptist years and years later, the same thing being said about him. In all 39 instances of the hand of the Lord being used in scripture, we can find three major things, three major components here. Judgment, deliverance, or reconciliation. Anytime the hand of the Lord is used, it's those three things. And what's interesting about Ezra's job and his commission, his job and commission encompassed all three. There was judgment, deliverance, and an offer of reconciliation. You look at Ezra 7, verse 10, if you jump down a few verses there, it says, for Ezra had set his heart to study the law of the Lord and to do it and to teach his statutes and rules in Israel. Think about those three words, set his heart. He purposely set his heart. He, he gave this 
his mind over to committing, not some mundane commitment, not some like, oh, I'm going to begin the new year. I'm going to start really studying God's word. Anybody ever do that? And it's like, I'm going to get my notebook. I'm writing in it and I'm going to do all of it. And then January's done. And guess what? It's February 13th. And you're like, oh, well, I failed again, right? No, this is this commitment, and he set his heart, he devoted himself to it, and having the hand of the Lord directly on his life led him to three things. He devoted himself to study God's word, he devoted himself to doing what it says, he devoted himself to a lifetime of teaching what he had learned and practiced. He went into this deep study of what God had said, the law of Moses, but he didn't just study it, right? Many of us have our little Bible studies that we do, which are awesome, are good to study God's word, but oftentimes we let it stay here and we don't let it produce any kind of action, any kind of uh, love for others, any kind of serving others. We just kind of stick in the Bible study mode and unlike Ezra, we stay there, but instead Ezra did what he studied. He practiced what he studied. Then he devoted himself to teaching. We're not all called to teach. We're not all called to get, we're not all called or gifted to teach in front of people as far as a stage goes or a classroom. But we are all called to teach in some way, whether it's our own kids, kids in the neighborhood, our friends, family, we're all called. And this reminds me of a man named James Frazier. We recently studied a book you can pick up. It's an amazing book called 10 Who Changed the World. And it's about kind of lesser known missionaries and couples who went around the world to to share the gospel. And this man, James Frazier, he did what Ezra did. He studied God's word, did it, and taught it. He went to an unreached people group in China, at least two people, um, basically wilderness, forest, just people who really didn't know much of the outside world. He was an accomplished concert piano player. He was an engineering student in his 20s and heard a message about unreached people groups and went off to China by himself. In the first five years of his ministry, he really had not a lot of connection because he didn't know their language and they had no language written down. So he took his time as he listened and wrote out their language for the first time ever in history. And even today, this is back in the early 1900s, even today, that same language he wrote out is used by these people. But he basically suffered along the way in these first five years and didn't see anything. He saw some glimpses, but they turned to Christ, but then they turned away once demonic activity started. They actually sacrificed uh, and, and worshiped demonic forces because they thought that would keep them at bay. <clears throat> and he got to the point where he was so oppressed by these demonic forces that this young man uh, was considering suicide in his first five years of ministry. But thank God he stayed committed. Thank God he didn't see it as a mundane commitment, just in the same way Ezra did it. So after five years, within four months, 600 Lee Sioux representing 129 families turned to Christ. Revival broke out, spreading from mountain village to mountain village. By 1918, 10 years into the work, 60,000 believers had been baptized. This man 
who made a commitment to studying the word, a commitment to practicing and teaching it, was used by God to see over 60,000 believers in a matter of 10 years, really five years after his somewhat failure, might, some might say. So as we think about Ezra, as we think about his commission and his devotion, I think we need to kind of start to wrap it up with this question. What are you devoted to? Or maybe a better way to ask it is, what would your family or friends say you're devoted to? They're the best learners of what you teach, right? And sometimes in my own mind, even as I thought about this question, I was like, oh, don't ask my kids. That might be a problem. What are you devoted to? Here at TBC, I see many devoted servants of Christ, children's ministry, nursery, uh, you name it, special needs, youth, college, small groups, local local outreach. It's just amazing to watch. But however, many of you, I see uh, maybe your devotion is set on the temporary You don't see the God at the center of your job, your family, uh, sports, uh, maybe the center of your education, maybe even the center of your travel, maybe even the center of your social media interaction, that God is in it all. There's no separation. And so you're devoted to temporary things. I, I found a picture that goes great with Super Bowl Sunday, I think. This man, I think, was really devoted to his team. This is a game between the Bills and the Colts, and this dude is just sitting in it, and along with thousands of others, actually. Look at just a few feet left. Look at all the heaters over there on the, above the red stands. That would have been nice to be sitting under, I guess. Uh, but he's sitting there in a foot of snow. He is devoted, right? He is absolutely devoted to his Buffalo Bills. Now, I don't know this dude. He could have gone to church earlier. I don't know, but that's not what we're making him out to be today, okay? It's just, just let's, uh, let's get it straight. Uh, but man, I've been there. I've been in an Army-Navy game in Philadelphia with a block of ice under my feet this thick. What in the world is going on? That's what I was devoted to at the time. My dad was a Naval Academy grad, all that. Uh, he didn't make me go, but I wanted to go. What are we devoted to, though? What adds value and meaning to our lives? And oftentimes, we kind of fail in this process. We need to adopt the spirit of William Carey. He said, I'm not afraid of failure. I'm afraid of succeeding in things that don't matter. Wow. I read that a few years ago, and I have that as a reminder on my phone weekly. (laughs) So that thing pops up and slaps me in the face on my screen every week. What am I doing that really doesn't matter in the long run? What does Ezra's life inspire us to be devoted to? Again, we can see a parallel in John the Baptist's life in Luke uh, Luke 1.79, to give light to those who sit in darkness in the shadow of death, to guide our feet into the way of peace. We see this commission that we can have to give light to others in darkness. So I was asking my wife, what is a good illustration of, of someone who's devoted to scripture, someone who's devoted to practicing it, someone who's devoted to, to sharing it and teaching it? And the first one she thought of when we were driving in the car the other day was a woman by the name of Laura Deacon, and I think she's here. Laura, where are you at? 
She's in the back middle, and her husband is doing my slides, so I have to be really nice to him. Uh, but this couple right here uh, was the first one that came to her mind, and this is her brief story. Uh, they have two kids, one, Becca, who was doing Impact Club for special needs kids, our Bible clubs we do every year. And they decided to attend together uh, their daughter's club that she was leading to these special needs kids. And Jim asked one of the people there if there was a need at the church for special needs ministry. And of course they said, yeah. And without Laura knowing it, he volunteered both of them to serve. So she kind of got shoved really into that ministry. And here she is in the middle of this and she's a speech pathologist. And as she's in the middle, she's like, wow, God could really use what he's gifted me in to help these families and these children. And from that, Laura began to see her need to be utilized, this, this speech. And she began to create these adaptive books, which you can see in the top right of the screen, to go along with the lessons that were taught each week. And then from that, the response was over, overwhelming. And from this step of faith, she went out on a limb and started this company called The Adapted Word. And now she's at conferences uh, with her and, and, and having a booth and setting up tables and getting this opportunity into the hands of special needs families so that these kids can know the love of God. This is her embracing, just like Ezra, studying the word, practicing it, and teaching it to others. What a powerful thing. What does it mean to be devoted like Ezra? Study practice, and teach. Let's pray together. God, we are so thankful for the example of Ezra, the example of James Frazier, the example of Laura Deacon, and so many others we could list here today. God, I pray that you will convict us. Lord, we all need to repent of many different things. Lord, help us to use the time as we uh, sing this song together and as we go into communion to really consider what you're trying to teach us to repent of our sin, to turn away from selfishness and just to focus on the wrong things, being devoted to things that are temporary. Convict us of our need to be all about you and the eternal. and Allow us to see you in a new way. In your name we pray, amen.